Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you, Lord, that in it you impart not only wisdom to us, but life. We pray that your spirit, he would be here, that he would be active, that he would encourage and strengthen us through the preaching of your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So the end has come. Fourteen weeks uh, in this book, the book of Ecclesiastes. You probably uh, got more from this book than you ever knew you wanted to ever get. Uh, This book is rather an enigma to much people, but I hope you've enjoyed sitting through it as much as I've had fun behind the pulpit. And in this last chapter, Solomon does not leave us quietly. He tries to put an exclamation point on everything that we've seen so far and shows us that main point uh, summarized by uh, David Gibson as to how to live life backward. And that is to see how death colors and infects all of life, how it robs us of our true gain and how it robs us of getting true satisfaction. And thus, we must, as one of my elders has been fond to put it, begin with the end in mind. We must recognize where we are going if we have any hope to live well in this life. There are certain things in this life that we can be certain of, and death is one of those things. If you don't know where you're going, you're sure to get lost along the way. And Solomon wants you to live while knowing that you will die, and secondly, that after that, you will be judged. You will be judged by God. As I've said again and again to you in many of our series, that we live in a moral universe. If there is a creator God, which there is, that means that there is an eternal standard. And if there is an eternal standard, then you and I will be judged by that standard. If this universe is just the byproduct of chance and billions and billions and billions of years, then there is no right and wrong, there is no standard, and you really can just live however you want because none of it matters. But Ecclesiastes tells you the exact opposite. There is a God, and you will be judged by Him. And He has one standard for everyone. And that we tend to not want to think about that, and especially not want to think about dying. We try to avoid it in a million different ways. I'll take, for example, another song from, from the Foo Fighters. I quoted to them, or quoted to you from them a few weeks ago. And in the interim of that time quoting to you, and this time quoting to you, they're their lead drummer for a long time died having many illicit substances in his system. He says this, I never want to die. I never want to die. I'm on my knees. I never want to die. I'm dancing on my grave. I'm running through the fire forever, whenever. I never want to die. Resonate with that a little bit. I'm not exactly looking forward uh, to that day. But Solomon's message is the exact opposite. You are going to die. You need to deal with it. You need to think about it. Otherwise, you're going to miss what life is really about. I know what some of you are thinking. But Levi, what if Jesus comes back before I die? And and there's there's a point to that. For some lucky souls, Jesus will return uh, before, before you pass. And you will not have to deal with death. And yet, I fear that that idea of, and the unhealthy fascination with the exact time of Christ's return is just another way of us saying, I never want to die. I'm dancing on my grave. I never want to die. 
I've known many a good saint who thought Jesus was going to come back before they passed and who are now either dead or close to it. The reality is that the normal existence for most of us is we will die and we will need to prepare ourselves for that. Jesus is coming back. None of us know when. So let's live like we will probably experience what most of human history has. And the key to living well is facing the end and then working your way back to today. And so Solomon gives us here some instructions as how to begin with the end in mind. How to start today knowing what is awaiting all of us. And those are this. Know death is coming. Know that God will judge you. Keep the words of the wise. And trust the one true shepherd. And so we'll begin with that first bit of cheery news. Death is coming for you. And no matter how hard you run, he will catch you. Death will eventually get you. That's what the first eight verses of chapter 12 are all about. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That's a cheery message for you on Mother's Day. Solomon warns of the days that are coming for all of us, that if we live long enough, well, you will have no joy in them, he puts it, as your body fails. And then he just gives lots of poetic imagery here of what it's like to get old. What it's like to have your body to start to betray you, where you will fear high heights, where the strong man is bent over, where the grinders aren't working anymore. That's your teeth. Where your teeth aren't working well anymore, where the eyes look out through the window but they're dimmed and can't see really well anymore, where the almond tree blossoms, you get gray hair. The process of getting old. I've sat by uh, the bedside of some, some dear saints, um, people uh, we still drive by their house, lived close to us, as their minds and their bodies betrayed them. I've seen the horrors of Alzheimer's disease and dementia how it robs people of who they are. And the silver cord is cut and the golden bowl is broken and the body returns to the dust and the spirit returns to its maker. This is what it means to live in this life. That your body will eventually betray you. There is no fountain of youth that you will find that will make you the exception. Or as Peter puts it, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Peter offers this picture that the glory of humanity, the glory of you and me, is like a flower in the field. It blooms with all of this beauty, but then in the sun it withers and it dies 
and it passes as if in a day. Or Solomon's been putting it throughout this book. Vanity of vanities, breath of breath. Life is like a breath. It just comes and it goes. Such is the glory of mankind. And so to live as a creature means realizing that you are mortal and that you will die. And that this is the limit that God has placed on you. God has placed that limit on you and on me. If you think back to Genesis chapter 3, after man fell into sin, God removed man from the garden so that he would limit his evil, that he would not be able to continue to eat from the tree of life and live forever and increase in that evil forever. And thus we were removed from the presence of the one who is the fountain of life. Death is God's righteous judgment upon sinners like us. And it colors absolutely everything we've seen in this book. The idea of vanity of vanities. At its heart is really two things. The struggle at the heart of this book is two things. First, the reality of death and living in a cursed world. And second, the flip side of that, that you and me long for more than that. It's built into us. We don't like to think about death because we were designed to live forever in the presence of God. We look for ways of escape. We look for gain in the things of this life because we were designed to live in a paradise with God and with others. And in this way, all the promises of paradise and gain that we find in this life, whether through political theories or personal success, they touch on a real God-given desire that you have. That you would remain young forever. That your body would not betray you. That you would eat that food and truly be satisfied. That you would have success in your work life and it wouldn't just poof, disappear like the vapor that it was. We all long for that type of paradise because we have lost that type of paradise. And so our lives pass like a breath or a vapor. And we must prepare to face death. David Gibson summarizing this for us on Ecclesiastes and what it means to die and to die well. He writes, To die well means that you realize death is the limit God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. That includes me. I'm pretty keen on the idea of being the center of the universe. To die well means I realize death is not simply something that happens to me. It happens to me because I am a sinner. I realize that in a sense, I cause my own death. To die well means I realize that every time I see a coffin, it preaches to me that the world is broken and fallen and under the curse of death. And it is only because of His mercy that I am not consumed today. To die well means realizing that from the day I was born, I live under the sentence of death, and I am amazed that God has spared me as long as He did. Death is not below any of us. Death is something we all rightly deserve. And so Solomon says, don't waste your life but live knowing that God exists, knowing that you will die, and do that in your youth. So we often have this stereotype. Kids grow up in church. Then when they get out of the home, they go in there, they sow their wild oats, and maybe when they turn 30 or 40, they might come back to church. Solomon says, don't do that. Don't do that. Remember God in your youth. 
In other words, it is objectively better for you to live in light of who God is for the whole entire time of your life. Because again, we live in a moral universe. And to live as God has instructed will bring you greater joys and greater pleasures and more long-lasting joys than doing whatever you want. God knows his world better than you do. And so beginning with the end in mind means coming to terms with our creaturely existence as sinners marked for death. Second, we must know that death is not the end. It is the end of this life, but it is not the end. We are not materialists who just think that there's only the material and natural world. Solomon says the body goes back to the dust and the spirit goes to the Lord until the resurrection of the dead. The end of the matter, he says, as all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This must shape how you live today and tomorrow and the next day. God will judge you. Every deed, every secret thought. He has established his throne with righteousness and justice. The choices you make with how you interact with your spouse, your children, your co-workers, in the community, in society. God will judge. There is no area of life where you get to do however you want to do. God will judge. We live in an idolatrous age because we convince ourselves that no one has the right to tell us how to think, how to feel, how to live. Now, if there were only humans, that'd be true. If God doesn't exist, me telling you how to live is the height of all arrogance. I just come up here and say, Levi says you should live this way. You should ignore Levi. I am no God. But because God does exist, there is that standard and he will judge us according to what is good, right, and just. To put it another way, the sin that you like to excuse, that you like to play around with in your mind, to justify when, it, when you do it, will not only bring you death to you and your relationship, but the God who is three times holy has promised to judge it. No amount of pride, no amount of personal belief in relativism or individualism will change that. And none of us stand much of a chance. God says here that every secret thing, every deed will be brought into judgment. No one in this room, on his or her own standards, will pass that judgment. And that should give you great amount of pause. And if you want to know what God's judgment looks like, the best place to find out what God's judgment is like is from the mouth of Christ. You know, we wouldn't know very much about hell if Jesus didn't say as much as he said about it. Besides the Gospels, there's precious few information about what hell is like. So if you want to be more like Jesus... Talk more about hell. He speaks of it as a place where the fire is never quenched and never ends, where the worm does not die, where there is unending weeping and gnashing of teeth because God the Father pours out his terrifying wrath on the wicked. If you want to live well, if you want to begin with the end in mind, then you must realize that physical death is not the end. We don't get off that easy. Judgment comes for us all, for God is a holy and just God. 
And here's where we should start to feel the weight of it. Solomon says, your life is a vapor. Puff, it's gone. It's just, it's, it's light. But your sin isn't. Your sin sits heavy upon you. Life goes like this, and then there's eternal judgment after it. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in for us. The cup of wrath that God has for mankind, the one that would be poured out on the sins of his people, Jesus willingly drank. The night before he died, he said, Father, if this cup could pass for me, if there's any other way, may it go that way. That cup, if you know your Old Testament imagery, is the cup of God's foaming wrath. And the son drank it, and he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he drank the cup. He took the wrath. And so, through Christ, we can be saved. By grace, through faith. As Romans 3 reminds us, because of the work of Christ, God is both just in that he is punishing sin. Every sin is still judged and punished. Either you pay for it or Christ pays for it. And he's also now the justifier, the one who makes other people just or righteous. That we, sinners though we be, may be righteous in Christ and in Christ alone. Solomon says, death is not the end, there is more, and it will either be more wrath or more grace, either eternal life or eternal death. Live accordingly. In the interim, his next piece of advice or instruction is to keep the words of the wise. Look again at uh, verses 9 through 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The preacher, the teacher, who is Solomon, sought to give us wisdom. And we must know that these words of wisdom, it says right here, don't ultimately come from him. They come from the one shepherd, who is God. It is God who speaks through his word. And there is a real temptation to make our search for truth and wisdom to come from outside of those words. That's where he hems us in here. My son, beware of anything beyond these, the words of the wise. There's much study, or with much study, is a weariness of the flesh. I feel that sometimes uh, the more higher up in education people go, even in theology, the more weary it is to listen to them. The less convictional and sure they are of anything. This is what Solomon is getting at. You can, you can listen to smart people talk forever and realize eventually that they're actually, in their intellectual horsepower, have become fools. They can't even acknowledge that reality exists. You don't believe me? Some of the most famous philosophers make that very argument. They're not even sure that they exist. So why are you talking? So the words of the wise here are described as having both a positive and a negative aim in our lives. They both build us up and correct us. First, Solomon says that these words are carefully arranged with intentionality to be words of delight. They are to be words of delight. That is, when we truly get what God is saying in Scripture, they bring to us both delight and joy. And so one of the measures of being a Christian is 
Do you delight in the word of God? I'm not saying that you have to have this perfect quiet time every day to be a Christian. We sometimes like to heap legalistic um, expectations on people. But when God's word is preached, when you read God's word, is it a delight to you? Or is it only ever a burden? This is one of the measures of what it means to be a Christian. You find life in the very words of God. And in the context of Ecclesiastes, this idea of rejoicing or delighting has been a theme that we've seen throughout this book again and again. Life is not about gain. Life is not about getting whatever you can out of life, but rather life is a gift from God. And when we demand the infinite from finite things or experiences, the vanity of life increases. But when we receive those good things as a gift from God, our lives get better. I said at the outset of this book that Ecclesiastes increased my joy as I studied it. Hopefully you've seen why that is. And part of it is, is that we are instructed to enjoy the things of this life because they come from God. You are to receive them as a gift from God and to find the proper amount of joy in them as they point back to the goodness of our Creator. Of course, this must be done without making those things replacements from God, but again, signs of His goodness. Why is that a good thing? Here again the words of, of, of Gibson on this. Those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. People who don't know God, that's all there is to life and that's what they do. And yet Solomon again and again instructs us to eat and drink and be merry and have a good time. How do we make sense of that? But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and they taste and they feel like home. You were made to live in paradise. Paradise was lost. Christ came to begin the work of the new paradise. The paradise is coming again. And in the blessings of God, in the enjoyments of the good things of this life, we get a small taste of the coming kingdom. You get a taste of home. That is why you like it so much. God is the author of enjoyment. God is the author of pleasure. Satan in our fallen nature pervert those things. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Second, the words of the wise also have a negative purpose. They correct us. Solomon says they are like goads. If you don't know what a goad is, shepherds would have on the end of their sticks pointy nails. And as they were herding the cattle, they would stand on either side of the cattle and they would poke them with these nails so that they wouldn't go off course. They wouldn't stray uh, from the safe path. In the same way, the word of God corrects us. They cut us. And they, in that way, they save us from greater harm and suffering. So another mark of a Christian is not just rejoicing in the word of, the God, of word of God, but that you allow it to correct you. That when you feel the conviction of the Spirit fall upon you, that you repent. And that you work at walking in faithful obedience. And again, that doesn't come naturally. We don't want to be corrected. We want to do whatever it is that pops into our head. But the fool rejects correction. The fool denies that there is a God. 
So you need to come to terms with your need for correction and learn to love the faithful wounds of a friend. In the words of the wise, we find how to live well. God has commanded you to enjoy the good things of life. And he has also put up guardrails as to where you should not go. Listen to him. And this brings us to the end of the matter. Now that we've considered it all, there is one final point with two sides here. Fear God and trust the one true shepherd. Solomon says the whole duty of man can be summarized as this. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. Don't follow your own heart. Know that God exists and do as he has told you to do. And the opposite side of this comes from verse 11. And there's a call to trust the one shepherd. The words of the wise come from one true shepherd. They have a divine origin. And we must see this allusion here to the one shepherd as significant in two ways. To the book of Ecclesiastes and to Scripture. Think just for a moment of all the imagery of Scripture of shepherds. Abel was a shepherd. Abraham and his sons were shepherds. Moses spent a time in the wilderness preparing for his ministry as a shepherd. King David, the prototypical king in the Old Testament, was the shepherd king who slayed Goliath. God himself is described as a shepherd in his word again and again. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He cares and provides for us. His rod and his staff hem his people in. And in Ezekiel 34, God offers a word to the people of Israel. And in it, he takes the shepherds of Israel, that is the leaders of Israel, and he just knocks them down a peg or two. He says that they are lazy, they are cruel, they are selfish, they are harming the sheep instead of binding their wounds. They will not seek the lost. And so God promises that he will send a new shepherd. And he promises that this new shepherd will feed the sheep, will bind their wounds, and will seek the wandering and bring them back. And that this shepherd that God is sending will be David. David's been dead for a long time. This shepherd will be David, and he will also somehow be God at the same time. This is, of course, a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And that is where Jesus enters the scene in John chapter 10. He points directly to Ezekiel 34 and he says, I am the good shepherd. He's like, you remember that shepherd God said was coming in Ezekiel 34? The one from the line of David, the one who will actually be God? I'm that guy. I'm the good shepherd. You know what makes me the good shepherd? Is I'm not like those hired hands who run away when the wolves come. I am going to lay down my life for the sheep. And he binds and he heals and he feeds and he teaches and he seeks those who are wandering and then lays down his life for the sheep. Christ is the one true shepherd. If you take something from this book, take that. To fear God is to fear Christ. To trust God is to trust Christ. And the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. They know when he speaks. So don't miss this. There is only one shepherd and there is only one way to be saved and that comes through Christ. And so we also must see this idea of shepherd in the context of this book. Right? There are several sayings that are repeated 
throughout this book again and again. Vanity of vanities, or breath of breaths. Living life under the sun, and striving after the wind. And I told you at the outset of this book that the word striving is sometimes translated by others as chasing or even vexation. But I think the best translation isn't chasing after the wind, but it's shepherding the wind. The word used throughout the book in striving after the wind comes from the root word to shepherd. To shepherd. So all throughout this book, mankind has tried to shepherd everything. And it's like shepherding the wind and it slips right through your finger. So it's no accident that Solomon ends this book by saying there's actually one person who is a true shepherd. Who does shepherd the wind. Who does control everything. Who works out the beginning from the end. Who is the Alpha and the Omega. Who is the Almighty God. You try to control life and you can't because you're not God. But there is a shepherd. And he does just that. And so trust in him. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. You cannot find that gain but through him. God has overcome the vanity of life through Christ. By dying, he has put death to death and has provided eternal life. Salvation comes from the Lord alone, through Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So trust the shepherd, fear God, keep his commandments, and he will save you. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have declared the beginning from the end, that you rule over every second of this universe. Lord, we ask that you would train our hearts and our minds to trust in you, to realize that where we fail at finding gain, you have provided it in Christ. Where we fail at shepherding the wind, you declare where the wind goes. Oh Lord, may we be found humble and filled with faith, knowing that Christ in Christ alone reigns. And this world is being remade by his death and resurrection. We pray that he would return and that his kingdom would indeed come to earth as it is in heaven. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.